House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Dr. Michael Shermer, thank you for being here. Oh, great to be here. What is your comments on on things like that? Why why are people so fascinated uh, trying to blame everything bad on the devil and everything good on God? <laughs> oh, you mean uh, uh, <laughs> religious attributions, uh, not conspiracies? Yeah, it's kind well, of a conspiracy, I suppose. <laughs> they seem to be tied. They're tied together nowadays. Uh, I very seldom. In, in research and working on books, I very seldom come across a person that's not tied to something um, spiritually, some sort of God, and as well, yeah. the world's flat yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, in fact, I, I saw a funny um, conspiracy meme going around the Internet with a little image, uh, and it was the um, some guy, oh, some conspiracy theorist goes to heaven and meets uh, Jesus and God, the whole thing, and uh, and God says, "Well, you were you you were really a good person, so I'm going to grant you one wish. You can ask us anything you want." He said, "All right, who killed Kennedy?" And he said, "Lee Harvey Oswald, acting alone, using his own Carcano rifle." And the conspiracy goes, "This goes even higher than I thought." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, uh, well, it is an interesting. Um, kind of hypocrisy on the part of religious believers that uh, you might call it just the attribution bias, but, uh, you know, when good things happen, prayers are answered, whatever, God gets the credit. When bad things happen, prayers are not answered, God does not get the blame. It's either the devil gets the blame or, or nobody gets the blame. So people do recognize um, when nothing happens that there's a certain element of chance and randomness to the universe and you know, God just just chose not to do something, but, but but by the same token, when something good happens, it's not randomness on the other side. It's it's you know attributed to this you know an agency effect there. So you know that's just this kind of a standard cognitive bias I think um, that we all have that religious believers in particular employ. It seems to happen with conspiracy theorists too, because imagine the claim like. Big money controls all the elections, and when their side loses, they say, "Ah, of course, this just shows the effect of big money." And then when their side wins, crickets. You know, apparently. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, so, you know, American politics just elevates the uh, extremists' cognitive biases on both ends, on either side, for sure. Um, and, you know, nothing new under the sun there. I mean, I'm old enough. I'm 64 now. My first election was 72 with Nixon. And so I, I was in college, freshman in college, uh, during Watergate. And, you know, our, our textbook essentially was the daily newspaper. And, uh, you know, so all the, the, the heated stuff going on now with Trump, you, you know, this, there, there's, it's really not that unusual for American politics. So in terms of heavens on earth, so, is the main thesis of the book that we're running into problems because people are searching for heaven on Earth, or is it because people are searching for heaven after Earth? Yeah, a little bit of both. So, the the, the book, um, which came out in paperback, by the way, this week, that's my, my conspiracy dog. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, so it has two theses, really. The, the first is, you know, the general search for 
the afterlife, immortality, um, and utopia, uh, either heavens after um, this world or, you know, we're going to create a heaven on earth here. Uh, either way, um, it takes the focus off the kinds of progress we can actually make, what I call protopia, not utopia, just incremental progress to try to make the world a little bit better by focusing not on this life but the next life or on utopia instead of protopia. Um, these almost almost never go well. It, it's never good for for moral progress or human progress in societies. And uh, now, you know, the low-hanging fruit, you know, the religious versions of the afterlife, those are pretty easy to deconstruct and debunk. Um, but, and I only have one chapter on the monotheism versions of that, and I take on the, the spiritualists like Buddhists and Western Buddhist versions of reincarnation, that sort of thing, near-death experiences and all that. Uh, but the real, um, the new stuff in the book is on all the scientific attempts to achieve immortality. That is, I call, I call it afterlife or atheists. These are the cryonicists that want to freeze your body or your head and, 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 and revive it centuries hence, or the uh, radical life extensionists that think uh, the technology is already available for us to live for centuries, or the mind uploaders like the singulatarians like Ray Kurzweil chief engineer of Google, you know, they, they're, they're pouring money, a lot of money, real money, hundreds of millions of dollars in investing in defeating death. And if you can't defeat death in your lifetime, uh, then you can upload your mind into a computer and, and then turn it on later or, or, uh, or, or download it into a new brain, centuries hence, whatever. So these are all fantastic, fun, interesting subjects. Uh, none of them offer any better hope than the religious versions of the afterlife, I'm afraid. And uh, and it's not that I'm against it. I think it's you know these people are all pro science and technology, and and I don't want to die any more than anybody else. But uh, but I you know we have to look at these things realistically, and uh, you know I just think it's not there. So it's probably never going to be there. But if if we ever do achieve scientific versions of immortality, or at least radical life extension, it's it's going to be well after our generation now. So uh, I want to go back to one word that you used. A, a, a minute ago, and that is incremental. So, is so you see, it's not a problem to go for bettering society. It's a problem when we try to make a leap too far forward. Is that? Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So utopians always fail because um, they're they're aiming for perfection, for you know, extreme happiness for everybody forever. That's just not possible. I mean, you have a family of five and they can't get along. You know, how about five million or five billion? <laughs> you know, it's just you know, people have different interests and needs and abilities and and so on. And and um, you just there's no way there's one system. You know, there is. You know, what's the ideal way to govern a society? There there is no one ideal way. You know, there's a dozen you know, maybe that we've that we've improved upon over the centuries, you know, liberal democracies, market economies with a certain level of checks and balances and tax rates and so on. And that, and, but even there, there's there's not one correct liberal democracy. It depends on what the country is, what the people want. Um, you know, some people want a more progressive tax. Some people want a less progressive tax. There's, there's not a correct answer to that question. And, uh, you know, this I'm just reminded of this. I was just binge-watching the Netflix series uh, Trotsky, you know, eight hours of the whole history of Trotsky, Lenin, Stalin, and, and the whole movement uh, to uh, create a, per a perfect society, utopia, in uh, Russia. Uh, ultimately, Trotsky wanted to make it global. 
And, you know, they end up in these idiotic conversations about who are the right people to kill. We have to murder somebody, so who's it going to be? <laughs> no, we've got to murder the intellectuals. No, 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 we've got to murder the kulaks. No, no, you murdered the wrong people. These are the people we've got to murder. And when I talk about murder, I'm talking about, you know, genocide. I mean, you know, millions yeah. of people. And uh, this is the kind of thinking that utopianism gets you. It's the path that takes you down. You know, if and the analogy I make in Heavens on Earth is the, the trolley problem. You know, would you throw the switch to, to kill one worker if it would save five workers? Most people say they would. And uh, you probably know this scenario, but if your listeners don't, you know, you're standing at a track with a switch and a trolley's hurtling along. It's about to kill these five workers who mysteriously can't hear it, and, and you're not not allowed to yell to them, "Get up! There's a trolley coming!" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, the only thing you can do is either. Switch, flip the switch or not. If you flip the switch, it's going to go down the sidetrack and kill the, the one worker who also can't hear it. Anyway, it's just one of these philosophical thought experiments. And almost everybody says they would flip the switch. It's a utilitarian calculus, you know, kill the one to save the five. Well, if you can get the average American college student who takes these kinds of tests uh, to do that, you know, how easy it would be if you could convince the people, look, we can have a perfect society if it weren't for those, you know, Jews or Hutus or Serbians or whoever is the bad guy holding us back, you know, those political dissidents who won't go along, um, you know, we have to get rid of them. And, and, and the them often escalates up quickly into tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people that we have to eliminate. Then we can have perfection. And that never works out well. Yeah, so... Um Moving a little bit away from the genocide, but there was, let me see if I get a comment on, on one thing. So, so one attempt at utopia that seems to be gaining a little bit of steam right now is, is, is the Green New Deal that some Democrats in Congress are pushing. And to me, it sort of seems like, like they're pushing for a utopia because they're saying we're going to redo the entire energy economy of the U.S. and, and they put an and on that. And, uh, they're going to make, uh, they're going to get rid of inequality and make everything more fair. And to me, it seems like, okay, if you want to do something about a carbon tax or, or, you, you know, we're going to have some, some or a few policies in place to deal with, um, with climate change, that's one thing. But to say we're going to lump all this together and have a more fair, just, um, economy with one bill, it seems, it seems like an attempt at utopianism. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I think those to be kept separate, income inequality, tax issues, progressive, regressive, whatever, that's separate from what are we going to do about um, global warming. You know, it's real, a human cause, pretty much everybody agrees with that. Uh, even take someone like Bjorn Lomborg, who's often called a climate denier or a lukewarm or whatever. He's not. Uh, you know, he just, he just makes the point, I think wisely, that we can't do everything. So what can we do? And what is our goal? Is it, you know, just to save lives? Is it to clean the environment? And, you know, my fear is that what you just said is that the environmental movement has become something like a secular religion. It's kind of a, almost a spiritual movement. Like, you know, we're going to save the earth goddess, uh, earth mother goddess, and, uh, you know, this, you know, humans should play second fiddle to the earth. And, you know, it, it kind of drifts off into these philosophical, metaphysical, spiritual uh, angles that you know practical people don't want to hear about, um, particularly religious conservatives, say, free market conservatives, and and so it's better to just go the kind of the hard angle. I call it the Elon Musk approach. Just like, look, you can make a gazillion dollars uh, selling electric cars or making windmills or whatever, and you know as a side product, this is going to be good for the environment, and 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 we all want to conserve the environment. 
but 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 you gotta you gotta approach it in a way that appeals to people's baser instincts. Like you know, how can I make money doing this or not lose money? Because uh, that's you know the bottom line for for most people. They don't they don't go down that utopian route. And um, uh, but it is that's an interesting observation because with with Ocasio Cortez now and the you know the green. What's called the Green New Deal? It was, you know, yeah. Reaching back to to Roosevelt's New Deal, oh boy, um, you know that's going to just that that's going to auto correct in, in conservatives' brains to you know socialism, communism, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and they're going to oppose it. Just so, so I like things like just a carbon tax. You know, just explain to people the economic concept of externalities and that. Uh, you know that that a coal company polluting the environment is not paying for, you know, all of its uh, Im- impact on the environment. No more than we would allow it to, to you know, pollute the the local river such that the people downstream don't have drinking water. No one would agree that that's okay. You know, so why is pouring CO2 gases into the atmosphere uh, any different from that? You have to kind of approach it that way. I think a more practical, and we can adjust that. And also the time horizon, you know. It, it's like we're not going to get off coal anytime soon, but, but we do. It, it would be good to start introducing more nuclear power, more wind, more solar, more geothermal, and so on. Incrementally, you know, just this, this putting these time limits on it. And also the doomsday scenario, you know. If we don't do this by 2050, it's all over. <laughs> you know, and then what the problem with that is when it doesn't happen, that people go, oh yeah, you know, you guys said this back in the '80s, you said it in the '90s. I remember I was in college in the '70s when the ecology movement took off. What was the Earth First Day? First Earth Day was, I think, '71 or '72. You know, and, and Paul Ehrlich's book and all the doomsayers. None of that happened. Overpopulation. You know, the the you know the disappearance of the rainforest. All those things. No, nothing happened. Uh, I mean, none of the bad things happened. So. Reasonable people can look at that and go, "Yeah, you know what? You've been you've been calling doom for decades. We don't believe it. So therefore, we should do nothing." Well, that's the wrong response. We should do something, but not everything. So one thing that always gets me with this is there are, there are major problems to solve, but oftentimes people don't like the solutions that would work the best. Like you mentioned, nuclear. You have so many people afraid of nuclear because they grew up on. Uh, you know, movies like, like you know about like Three Mile Island and the the China yep, syndrome yep, and whatnot, yep, or, or or genetically modified foods that would lead to more um, efficient crops. Um, or, or the one I've been hearing more about now is lab grown meat. I mean, imagine you know the 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 strides we can make forward, you know, both environmentally, um, if we weren't doing factory farming, but also ethically if we weren't. We weren't doing factory farming, but you say lab-grown meat to someone, and they're like, "Ugh." No, I know. Yeah, they got a. There's a marketing issue there. I think I. Uh, I haven't had the lab-grown meat yet, but I have had the um, some of the alter, the plant alternative burgers, not the ones you can get yet, but uh, that are just being marketed now, and they're pretty good. They're pretty tasty. They're better than the vegan burgers you get like at restaurants. And they're that company I know is struggling to. Um, to get placed in supermarkets in the meat section, and of course, the you know, meat industry doesn't want that. Yeah. Uh, much like uh, with the milk industry, uh, you know, was opposed to like almond milk calling itself milk. You know, that, that that word means something. You know, that that's just market capitalism competing and people trying to, to ask for special favors and, and so on. 
the bigger, I think the bigger issue, yeah, their marketing, but also long term. You know, the, the, you know, my vegan friends, you know, they want this to happen tomorrow. You know, it's like you guys are delusional. You know, have you been to Texas? <laughs> have you been to a Texas steakhouse? You know, people aren't going to just give up meat like that. Yeah. It's not going to happen overnight. And if you look at the percentages of people that are vegan or vegetarian over the last, say, 40 years, you know, it, it's still in the single digits. It, it, it grows just, you know, tiny, tiny percentage, fraction of a percent each year. Um, you know, the, the, the number of people that are hunting and fishing has gone down. Uh, but, you know, not, nothing dramatic. It, it's going to take, you know, a century, something like that. I think we should set our sights like, uh, again, maybe set your site 2100 or 2200 it's a multi-generational thing just think of people that built the european cathedrals over the centuries you know it's just one of those long-term projects work on it a little bit um every year but let, let's not get crazy so a question i get asked a lot is do you think that the country is becoming more um more conspiratorial or more post-truth or or more taken with with ideas that that are Either dubious or completely false. I mean, do you do you get that sense right now that that we're going through a period of fashionable conspiracism or or um, no? Something I, like well, that? here's what I think. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good point. Um, you know, no, I, I don't, there's nothing new about conspiracy thinking. I think it's it's elevated in the media because of social media and the internet. Now, the, whereas someone like Alex Jones would not, he would have had a much harder time getting a toehold in mainstream media, you know, just say 20 years ago or back in the 60s or something like that. The Alex Joneses of the world then, they just had like little underground, um, you know, uh, mimeographed magazines, you know, read by, you know, 25 people. You know, they just didn't have the resources that are available now where you can, you know, create your own YouTube channel and, if Google doesn't censor you, <laughs> you can have millions of followers. And, and so those kinds of crazy ideas, like Sandy Hook was an inside job by the Obama administration, or 9-11 was an inside job by the Bush administration, those things would have had a harder time gaining traction decades ago. So it's the Internet that elevates it into a larger um, available content uh, for people to consume, and it's, I don't, I don't think people psychologically are any more or less conspiratorially minded than, than before. It's the, it's the technology I think that enhances it. So, since you brought up uh, cryo freezing people, we did a poll down here in Florida um, last August, and one of the goofier things we we stuck on it was, do you think that uh, Walt Disney? Is frozen um, <laughs> right. uh, beneath the theme parks, and and we got fifteen percent to say yes, and I think an equal amount to say not sure. Um, that's a pretty high number, and, it, and it's one of those urban legends that sort of you know I, I I had heard in my youth, long even before the internet, um, and it's something that that seems to have a little bit of a toehold here in Florida, where Disney is such a big part of the economy. Um, but it seems yeah, like you have this, this, this mishmash of conspiracy and people, you know, rich people being able to live forever on Earth in, in one form or another. Yeah, there was, uh, well, that particular meme got started because Walt Disney died the same day that I think it was Alcor opened its doors and <laughs> released, you know, had a press release uh, talking about cryonics, introducing the idea. And that's what I think generated that overlap in people's minds. 
Um, on the other hand, uh, Ted Williams is frozen, or at least I think it's just his head is frozen. <laughs> pretty crazy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, now there's rumors about you know, SiliconValley.com billionaires who, who have uh, the blood of young men injected in their bodies. It's not true. Um, <laughs> you know, but just because some of those people like Jeff Bezos and, and uh, Peter Thiel and others have, have invested in companies working toward uh, defeating aging, sort of defeating aging, just just kind of trying to figure out why cells age and how what we can do to kind of attenuate cellular aging. And, you know, all that's really good. I'm, I'm glad they're doing that because along the way, you know, to get people to live for centuries or to break through that upper ceiling of about 120 years, um, they're going to have to solve problems like prostate cancer, breast cancer, and Alzheimer's and dementia you know, these sorts of things that, you know, that us baby boomers, I was born in 54, you know, we're going to start hitting the wall here pretty soon. And, you know, to have some of those problems solved, just to live a longer, higher quality life, even if, uh, just live a higher quality life for a longer period of time before you you pass, uh, that that would be a, a worthy goal. So, you know, to those people, I say, go for it. Uh, you know, I hope you I hope you figure out this and that and the other. But you know, don't worry about living 500 years. There's all these big discussions. You know, what will happen to marriages and careers and society and Social Security and so on if people live centuries? To, you know, forget it. Don't worry about that. Just worry about cancer. Worry about Alzheimer's. So, you know, solve those problems first, and then we can worry about the other ones later. Uh, so that again, that incremental uh, progress, I think, is the, is the way to go. So, you know, one thing I get accused of a lot, and maybe maybe you've been accused of this too, is um, these Pizzagate and QAnon people have have accused me of being a pedivore, which I think is worse than a pedophile because the pedivores they eat the babies. And this, oh in, my in, God, no, yeah. I haven't heard that one. Holy yeah, and, th and this was sort of. <laughs> Part of the Pizzagate thing, where not only was Hillary Clinton and the high-ranking Democrats, um, you know, running the child sex trade, but they were they were cooking the babies in the pizza ovens and then eating them for for the magic powers. And then apparently there's some sort of occult power you get to live a longer life when you eat the baby. So um, there's usually all Hillary sorts of this weird like stuff around. Yeah, that is pretty weird. I hadn't heard that one. No, I haven't been accused of that. I usually just get accused of being on the payroll of either a government agent or a large corporation, to which I just say, well, uh, I haven't seen any checks yet, so if you, <laughs> if you find them, send them my way. <laughs> but it's, it's, it, I mean, there seems to be this idea that, that, yes, we can have heaven on earth, and we don't have it because it's being hidden from us by somebody. You know, and yep. maybe for the maybe yep. for the religious, it's God hasn't granted it to us yet because we're not pious enough, or 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 for the people who are into the conspiracy thinking, it's well, the rich people have it, or those people have it, and they're hiding it from us so they can, you know, extort some sort of profit from us or keep us down in some way. Um, yeah, again, I remember back in the seventies, there were all these conspiracy theories about carburetors or special engines or special fuels that, that that would enable you to go you know hundreds of miles to the gallon rather than the you know 15 to 20 we were getting at the time and 
it's like, but they were all being, uh, you know, sequestered or squelched by the oil companies and the big automobile companies and so on. Uh, okay, so, but where are they? I mean, you know, nothing ever gets generated in a way that you can prove that any one of them is true. So that, that's yet again just another one of these old stories. Um, although, I, I, you know, I have to say, you know, we have to admit that um, some conspiracies are true. Uh, you know, in terms of why people believe conspiracies, I, I, I've been thinking about this recently with all the political stuff and after the WikiLeaks and so on. It's like, you know, a lot of times companies and governments, they do do things in secret uh, that harms the common good. Uh, you know, two or more people that meet and, and conspire to do something that benefits them and harms others. That actually does happen. It happens often enough. We have to acknowledge that. Uh, you know that that some conspiratorial thinking is not crazy. Uh, there's there's reasons to be suspicious of governments and corporations. They do cheat. They do lie. They do cover things up. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. It's just if 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 you go to the next step and say, well, everyone knows about Watergate, right? I mean, everyone reads this in the history book, and we all read about Iran Contra, so we all have this baseline knowledge that that this happens and we should be on guard for it and and i guess any serious you know civics class when they get to democracy the idea is there that you know if the government's not doing the right thing then you toss the rascals out so there's always this oversight there but but once you get past that there are some people who are just really into it and some people who you know are a lot more reticent to believe any particular theory so, so even beyond that, I imagine that, you know, there's a certain baseline amount that everyone should have. And then after that, it seems to be incredibly variable. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, the problem is, you know, the, the, what, you know, what we call the, Carl Sagan called the baloney detection <laughs> kit, you know, I call the conspiracy detection kit. How do you know? Uh, which ones are real and which ones are not. And, uh, you know, so I put together a, you know, a list of certain questions to ask, you know, like how, how many people have to be involved for this to be uh, a successful conspiracy? The more people that are involved, the less likely it is a, a real conspiracy, simply because people are incompetent, they can't keep their mouth shut, uh, and, and so on, and there's just more things that can go wrong. Or the grander the conspiracy, you know, if it's a, if a, if it's a conspiracy by a company to, you know, gain a, a market uh, toehold over their competitors in a, in a particular industry, that wouldn't be surprising. That's not a huge conspiracy uh, and not that unusual. But if the conspiracy is, you know, they want to take over the world and control <laughs> you know, the entire global economy, okay, that's not likely to be true simply because that's not how the world works. It's too big. There's too many elements that need to come together. Yeah, that's fascinating because I, I, I think that's a great point because, I mean, this pops up even at, at like town meetings. So when town when towns will sometimes discuss, you know, zoning laws or bicycle sharing programs or uh, GMO policy like they, they had to talk about in Hawaii a couple a couple years ago or, um, or down here in Florida when they were talking about mosquito abatement policies to deal with the Zika issue. I mean, you'll have people go in there who some of them are afraid of spraying or genetically modified mosquitoes or genetically modified seeds. Um, yeah. But then you get people who take it to the next step and say, this is a plot to take over the island of, of, of Hawaii or a plot to take over the state and have us bit by these mosquitoes. Um, and it, it, the motives 
you know, always seem to go really, really beyond um, what anyone can imagine sometimes. Just incredible goals that these conspirators have. Right, and you know, I'm not sure what the psychology of that is other than it's a little more titillating to think globally uh, or you know, some entire nation is going to be taken over rather than just some smaller element like that. Um, yeah, I mean, like if you look at the WikiLeaks or, or the, like the, what was that other one, the uh, Panama Papers you know, about rich people hiding money offshore, you know, that's a kind of conspiracy. Uh, you know, here's a group of people we're going to meet and we're going to plot a, a way to keep our government from taking more of our tax money than we want to give them. And, you know, you and I as regular people, we, we don't really have the resources for that. That's kind of a conspiracy. But, uh, you know, it's this kind of thing we expect. Yeah, we know rich people uh, try to not pay their taxes uh, and they find loopholes through their lawyers and accountants that we, that regular people can't have. But that, you know that we kind of know is true, and it's, but it's not very exciting. It's not titillating. It's not you know like a Dan Brown novel, uh, uh, you know something something like that. And uh, so th- th- there must be something in the human psychology about you know the, the big scale global kind of things are, are exciting. Uh, it's a little bit like the artificial intelligence debate. You know, is it going to you know wipe out humanity? Are they going to the robots going to take over? Is you know the, paperclip maximizer, you know, you program a computer to make paperclips, and it it, it, it turns on and it consumes everything in the room, and, <laughs> including you, and then the entire planet gets turned into paperclips. I mean, these are the kind of fantasies that, you know, science fiction teenagers like to dream up. Um, that's not the problem. The problem is going to be, you know, something, something, you know, much more mundane and boring, uh, you know, about like, you know, my my self-driving car, you know, changes lanes too quickly or something, you know, something small like that. So, getting back to the book, I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, let me ask you, what's the reason that people are always looking for for some sort of heaven? Because that seems to be the thing for. Um, you know, for for religion, it's been with us for thousands of years, and you've got people. You know, I guess communism was a dream to find heaven on earth. Um, but is this an issue where people are just so afraid to die that they don't they don't they're not trained to deal with it, or they don't want to deal with it, or maybe you know something in our evolution keeps us being able from from being able to deal with it. Yeah. Uh... There's a theory called terror management theory in, in psychological circles that has gotten a lot of traction, and they have a fair amount of research in support of it that I'm skeptical of. It has to do with the idea that um, that the main driver of human civilization, creativity, architecture, poetry, art, music, science, uh, is that people are afraid of dying, and they sublimate their fear and anxiety. It's almost a kind of a Freudian thing because it's unconscious, into being creative, um, and constructive and productive and so on. Um, the problem I have with this theory is that if you ask people, uh, you know, straightforward, are you afraid of dying? You know, most people are. It's not. It's not high on the priority list. Like this is something I think about all the time. I'm worried about it. I. This. You know, if, when you ask people why they believe in God, you know, fear of death is you know way down at the bottom of the list. You know, they many more reasons why they believe in God or are committed to their religion. Fear of dying is not not high on the list. That the theory depends on this terror management theory depends on it being unconscious. Now it, it's kind of tricky to get to, in terms of empirical research. 
to find out if people have unconscious thoughts. It's, it's like there's a big debate about this now with racism, you know, because most of the polls show people are far less racist today than they were decades ago. You know, just think about interracial marriage in the 60s versus now, uh, or you know, gay marriage has changed. You know, it's just these attitudes have changed dramatically. Things are way better racially now than they ever were. But, you know, there's this test called the, um, the uh, what's it called, the, um, not thematic perception test, no, that's... Um, Anyway, I forget the name of it now, but but you, you take this test online and and you can find out that you're 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 an unconscious racist. It turns out everybody's an unconscious racist. We're all racist, and the proponents of this theory, you know, they contend that you know Americans are just as racist as we ever were, but it's <laughs> it's unconscious now. Okay, no, no, no. Um, and I'm skeptical of this because it's hard to get. The, if if I don't know what I'm thinking, how how are you going to know? what I'm thinking. And so much of this fear of death thing is similar to that. I think there's other reasons to explain why humans develop creativity and art and music and literature and science and so on that are that are not grounded in fear of death. No, I, I have a, a, a simpler, more straightforward theory about, uh, about belief in the afterlife, and that is this. We can't imagine being dead, because to imagine something, you have to be alive. Mm-hmm. The only experience any of us have ever had is being conscious and alive. And and so the idea of, you know, like imagine yourself dead, you can't do it. It's a little bit like imagine there's no universe. Like what are you talking about? I can't. I can't. Because to imagine something, there has to be something. Mm. So I think from the idea that I can't imagine there not being life, it, it's just easy to imagine, well, I see people dying around me, so they must continue on in some other form, and that's what I imagine myself doing. Uh, I'm just looking at my funeral from above. You know, usually it's from above, and, and the reason for that is is probably has to do with the fact that, like, if if you practice decentering, that is, if I tell you right now to the dead of winter here to imagine being on a, a beach in in Malibu, California, or Hawaii, and it's warm and 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 the waves are crashing and so on. Most people envision themselves from above like looking at their bodies down on their towel on the sand or something like that, not through their own eyes, staring out through their toes at the, at the ocean. And uh, so that decentering has to do with just kind of imagining yourself from above, which is why I think in part near-death experiences have that out-of-body element where you float up by the ceiling and you're looking down. And, you know, we know we have a pretty good idea that, that that's not true. People don't leave their bodies. But in their minds they do, and it's from above. And uh, so, so it has something to do with, you know, heaven's above, I can't imagine being dead, so I must go to this place up there somewhere after I die. Well, what is it that's going there? Well, my soul, okay, now, <laughs> so I have a whole uh, chapter on the history of this, it's so interesting that it used to be people would think you're just physically resurrected, your body is physically resurrected. Well, there's all kinds of problems with that. That is, well, the body is still in the ground rotting, so what's up there? Well, it's a copy. Well, if it's a copy, then that's not you. It's just a copy of you. It's any more than if God made a copy of you now when you're alive and, and took you to heaven, you'd still be down on earth going, hey, that's not me. That's that's a copy. It's like my twin. <laughs> you know, so there's the problem of identity is, is rife in these uh, religious afterlife versions. So, that, yeah, that brings up, you know, sort of a problem of definition because there's so many of these terms that people use um, I guess soul that you mentioned is, is sort of the first. I mean, no one's ever really defined this particularly well. But then more banal terms like spiritual, 
it's like, what exactly does that mean? What is the spirit? Is that the same as the soul? I mean, I know some people use spiritual experience to mean something, but but I, I'm never sure exactly what they mean by it. And it's sort of a catch-all for anything anyone wants to believe. Uh, yeah, so people are very muddled about this if you just ask the average person. Uh, theologians have great debates about this, and, and those debates have changed over time. So... Um, the, the, the reason the concept of the soul developed is because the idea of physically resurrecting the body largely failed for these logical problems. Like, for example, how old are you if you're in heaven? If your physical body is in heaven, it's recreated or copied or, or, or just literally lifted out of the grave and taken to heaven, um, you know, how old are you? <laughs> and so one Christian sect, as I write about, you know, said, you're 30, you know, because Jesus was 30 when he was crucified. And 30 is a good year, you know, your body is strong, your memory is good, and so on. Well, you know, I'm 64, so what happened to the 34 years in between my being 30 and being 64? You know, that's part of me. That's part of my my soul, my personhood, whatever you want to define Michael Shermer as. That's me. And, and what about all those memories I've had the last 34 years? Do they go uh, or they don't go? And if it's my soul, same problem, you know, what's... Uh, you know the idea that people have is somehow your your thoughts just lift off your brain and float upwards. Well, how does that happen? We have a pretty good idea of how memories are stored, you know, synaptically in in the neurons. But if the brain is dead, where where do the memories go? In the same way that that someone who fades from Alzheimer's, their memories are just disappearing. And we know exactly why. You know, the plaques and tangles in the neurons kill the neurons and the synaptic connections are broken, the memories go. So we know the memories are stored in there. If they if they go somewhere, you know, Aunt Millie's mind goes away from Alzheimer's, where do the mem- memories of Aunt Millie go? And, you know, they, do they float somewhere, you know, like a quantum field state or, of some sort, you know, so there's people that actually believe this. But, uh, but there's no evidence for this at all. You know, the only way to get those memories back is is by you know, essentially, you know, physical therapy, where you're you know, tr- sort of training your brain to rewire from strokes or injuries or something like that. But 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 there's nowhere that we know that they still exist. But so these are the problems of identity. Uh, it's also the called the Star Trek problem. You know, when Captain Kirk gets beamed to, you know, this the, you know planet Vega, you know, what's there? Uh, is it a, is he copy and pasted or is he physically moved? Uh, you know, so, so Trekkie fans like to, to debate about these things in pure science fiction. But, you know, something like that is what religious people have to explain. Uh, and the same problem exists, by the way, with the scientific versions, you know, the, with the, the mind uploading. If I copy your connectome, which is the analog to your genome, it's, it's all of your memories that are stored in the connections of your neurons. So it's called a connectome. If we copy that and put it, upload it into the cloud, say, and turn it on. By the way, this isn't even remotely possible, but let's just play it out. <laughs> uh, and we do this while you're still alive. Let's say we have a sophisticated fMRI brain scanner, and we slide you in there and scan your connectome and upload it into the cloud and turn it on. Uh, who's up there? Because you're still sitting here next to the brain scanner going, hey, I'm, I'm right here. 
and the copy is up there in the cloud going, no, no, we're up here now. No, no, I'm still down here. So really, you just have two of you, you know, and maybe, <laughs> maybe you could do it a dozen times. It could be 12 of you or whatever. The moment the copy happens and you, and you and the copy start living separate lives, you have different life pathways, therefore different memories. And just like twins, um, you know, are genetically identical almost, uh, the moment they are born, actually the moment they're even conceived, you know, they have slightly different life experiences and that makes them two different individuals. So even a copy, even the purely scientific, purely atheistic, uh, materialist version of this has the same problem. It's not you. You're not, it's not you up in the cloud or in the computer. It's just a copy of you. And wh- while the copy may think it's you, if you're still alive, uh, you're still there in your body. So there has to be a, a continuity from one moment to the next for the self to continue. So are you taking this back to heaven on earth? I mean, there's always problems with people trying to aim for, you know, something that's too good and to overreach. Like, um, so it's pretty clear when we've seen this with, with communism, um, you know, and the death toll that it created in the last century. But obviously there are other you know, less egregious examples. But what are the things that that we should be doing to sort of um, stop the negative effects of these of these overreaches? Yeah. Um, well, really, I think the founding fathers of the United States had it right. Uh, you know, just if you read the uh, Federalist Papers, uh, the, the, the debates between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Basically, to what extent should we empower a central government uh, or not versus the states versus just individuals? It's just fascinating reading. I mean, well, on the one hand, it's kind of boring reading, but, but uh, I mean, if you're not into that sort of thing, but really, it's the most, it may be the mo- one of the most important debates ever published. Uh, you know, Madison, Hamilton, these guys, I mean, they really gave this a lot of thought. There's a lot of history in there going back to the Roman Empire. And, you know, what happens if the central power doesn't have enough checks and balances? What happens if there's too many? You know, we need national defense uh, and, and so on. Uh, I think they largely got it right, uh, the fact that we're still going over two centuries later relatively successfully. Even even Trump, who is, is probably as close to a narcissistic dictator as we've ever had, um, you know, he can't do most of the stuff he wanted to do just because the Supreme Court says, no, you're not going to do that, or now the House of Representatives will say, no, you're not going to do that. But, you know, he, he, Even when he had both the House and the Senate, he did, didn't have the Supreme Court. Even when he thought he had the Supreme Court, he didn't. So there's enough checks and balances in there. I think it's, it's, a, it's a good way, if we were to migrate that system to Mars, Say this is a little project I'm working on just for fun right now. Is you know we're about to colonize Mars and set up a new civilization there. What should we take with us besides oxygen and food? Uh, you know what kind of government should we have there? Um, well, you you, you 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 would do worse than taking you know the, the, the Federalist Papers with you, the United States Constitution, Declaration of Independence, all that stuff, because those guys really gave that a lot of thought. And while it's not utopia, obviously it's not perfect, not even remotely close to perfect. There's no such thing. You know, they got, they got a lot of it right, uh, and I think that's somewhere in there is that right balance. 
Listen, I agree with everything you're saying. I mean, the, the uh, I make fun of the Declaration of Independence a lot because you have the best political prose ever written in the first three paragraphs, and then it devolves into a bunch of kooky conspiracy stuff at the end. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't take away from the, uh, um, y you know, anything I could say about the beginning because just the basic concepts like um, natural rights, political equality, um, and, and, and most certainly checks and balances um, and, and limited, you know, and I'm a libertarian, so I would say limited, limited, limited government um, to, to me is the best thing. I mean, one of the things you said earlier was, you know, there's no perfect way to do this, and, and I agree with that. Um, but I think at some point, I think, you know, public policy scholars and political scientists need to sort of start working on, you know, guidebooks for what works and what doesn't. And and we sort of know what doesn't in general terms. We know that dictatorships go south, and, and we know that, you know, democracies tend to work better. We know that market economies tend to work better. Um, but a lot of times, you know, when you mix that in with democracy, you find that, you know, people don't always want the policies that the experts would say would be best for them. So there's always a balance between, you know, what people want in a democracy and what people should have to make the best public policy. Yep, yep. I'd really like to know, maybe you know, um, why people, like dictators around the world, like uh, take the, you know, the head of Syria or, you know, Kim Jong-un of North Korea and so on, you know, and there's been thousands of them over the centuries, you know, they don't look at, like, the George Washington model and go, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the right thing for my country and my people, and then I'm going to go back to my farm. <laughs> and I'm going to be a hero for not doing what all dictators always want to do, which is keep as much power as they can, no matter how they, what they have to do to keep that power, which always ends up corrupting and, uh, uh, you know, ruining their countries. And you, you would think that they'd be well-read enough to know, like, okay, every dictator before me has failed. I'm going to try something different. Um, no, no, I think I'm just going to hang into power as long as I can, no matter how much I destroy my own people. <laughs> That's what they end up doing, and it's, it's staggering to me. Yeah, we saw the same thing down here in Florida. I mean, when Castro died, there was a lot of thought about him and, and, and his policies and whatnot. And, you know, I find it so disingenuous that the people who defended him were things like saying, oh, you know, he had such high literacy rates in Cuba. But the thing is, I mean, what's so great about a system that only one guy can run it for 60 years? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, it's someone, the fact that someone like Che Guevara could become an international hero. I mean, wherever I travel around the world, I always see that, you know, iconic image of him with the beret and the beard and, you know, the dashing Che. It's like, oh, my God, <laughs> this guy was a mass murderer. You know, how did he become a hero like that? You know, so we have. Or, or, or people try to justify communism and say, "Well, those things that happened in the past that killed a hundred million people, you know, that wasn't real communism." You know, yeah. if I did it, you know, I would be the benevolent dictator and I would do it right, and everyone would have this yeah. heaven on earth. Right. And, and unfortunately, right. it's sort of hubris. Yeah, hubris, and um, uh, you know, just this sort of. It could be something to do with our primate ancestry of, of like a hierarchical social primate species, hierarchical social primate species with an alpha male that's going to save us. You know, I'm kind of drifting off into sort of Freudian versions of why people believe in God, which is probably not the case. But, but this idea that that there's somebody up there, some powerful person that can 
save our society. That, that it certainly does appeal, I think, to some people. Although, from what I've read on, on, on surveys, the problem with like I was just bringing this up with Putin with with somebody um, that you know Putin would probably if they actually had a real election he'd probably win because he's so popular. Um, this was um, a political scientist responding to me to this question. Uh, Rachel Klein, Kleinfeld, who wrote that book, A Savage Order. How do you know that the Russian people really love Putin? Well, because I, I, re- I read it in all the Russian press. <laughs> she, la- she laughed and said, yeah, and you trust that? <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, good point. You know, it's not like, you know, the Gallup surveyors are going to be allowed in there to do a really balanced, fair, objective survey of what Russian people really think about Putin, as if they could be honest about it and not end up in the gulag. <laughs> and well, uh, so know, I'm not I, sure people re- really do want a powerful dictator. Well, you know, um, I will say, I have a, a bed and breakfast up on a lake in Canada, and when I was there um, two summers ago, we had uh, a Russian couple, fairly young, in their 30s here. And when we started talking about Putin and all that, uh, they absolutely loved him. And they said, why would we really? want it? And you know what the guy said, why would we want anything different? Look at what you've done in America. You've been into wars for the whole time Obama's in. Yeah, we're not in wars. You, you know, your cops are killing people. Like they, they had a whole list of things they thought was really bad going on in the U.S., and they're not dealing with it there, and yeah. they live well. Why would we want to change? Yeah, maybe uh, so they do. You, yeah. What can I say? <laughs> you know, what you can't really. It's their choice. Yeah, that's, that, that's really. right. Yeah. You know, I yeah. I don't know. You know, I just kind of. Well, I guess the you know the corrupt. Uh, so I, I really recommend Rachel's book, A Savage Order, Rachel Kleinfeld. Uh, she goes around the world t- talking about um, you know what happens when countries fail, they collapse, state collapses, um, and you know I- I'm a libertarian too, but but this idea of spontaneous order, uh, like Hayek talks about, um, which which does happen sometimes. The spontaneous order is not good. What what spontaneously orders are mafias, mafioso gangs that 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 fight each other, and homicide rates go way up, corruption levels go way up, and that's what happened in the Republic of Georgia after the fall of the Soviet Union, ninety two. Throughout the nineties and into the two thousands, the levels of corruption were just off the charts in the Republic of Georgia. There's so many uh, gangs and. Uh, you know, Russian Russian mafia types that were basically running the country, and you know, of course, they like they like that system. But you know, the average person, you know, did not was not prosperous during those years. No, you both you guys dealing in conspiracy. When we um, Joe, when we had Tom Nichols on, and he, you know, the death of expertise, isn't that also an issue that's different now as well as the internet? Uh, there seems to be a lot of people, you know. You got the Jenny McCarthy's going on television saying, "Don't, don't, don't vaccinate your kid because of autism." And when asked what, you know, research she's done, it's like the University of Google. Uh, but, but that's, you know, but it's it, that's true and that's acceptable. That's a lot of people get into fights on internet over all these sort of different conspiracies. And all their information is from Google or Wikipedia or something online. Uh, they, they don't seem to have a respect for uh, people that are actually uh, knowledge. They're actually working in a field. 
Yeah, I mean, as I, I, I will definitely agree with that because I think there are a lot of times where people are much more willing to rely on on their own gut feeling rather than what an expert thinks, and it is. Some people do devalue in some areas what expertise is and what it does. You know, it's much easier to be afraid of nuclear power than it is to listen to experts. It's easier to be afraid of genetically modified food than to listen to the biologists who actually work on it. It's, it's, it's easier to sort of go with your gut than to understand that knowledge is generated by people that know how to generate it and can come to not perfect conclusions, but better than one would just get guessing. I think I think Mike I think Michael might probably agree with that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh I mean, I'm I'm like the next person whenever I have a ache or pain or ailment, I I look it up online, but you know, that can only take you so far. <laughs> <laughs> and uh I, I don't always trust myself. I don't always trust the doctors, but you know, it's, it's like there's a role for for experts for sure. Well, it's just um, an expert, you know, uh, expert uh you know, if 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 I'm having a problem medically, um, who am I going to call, Jenny McCarthy or my doctor? Yeah, and yeah. who would I rely on? You know, I just... I'll never, I'll never forget that episode of of uh, Larry King live on National Autism Day, and he had on one side of his desk, literally physically, uh, you know, three people, two or three scientists from the, um, uh, the CDC explaining how vaccines work and why there's no link to autism. On the other side, he had Jenny McCarthy and Jim Carrey. With videos of their, uh, her little kid, and oh god, it was just like the heartstrings versus the you know rational eggheads, and it was clear who was winning. And like, oh my god, this is terrible. <laughs> and yeah. you know that 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 uh, appeal to um, not authority but to celebrity uh, does seem to opt in Trump appeals to authority uh, of, of a rational kind, and also the anecdotal thinking. You know, it's like in Trump's. Uh, that speech he gave about when he was asked about um, autism, a vaccine, you know, well, I know somebody that did this. Well, I know somebody, too, so what? I mean, you know, the <laughs> anecdotes don't matter, but, you know, but, but our brains are not wired, uh, you know, to think statistically. They're wired to think anecdotally. Yeah, my, my, well, my wife went through cancer two years ago and made it out completely healthy thanks to the doctors and the modern medical treatments. But after she was diagnosed, I mean, she looked it up online. And some of the first things that popped up were, were like, tape onions to your wrist and that will cure you. Um, and she had a friend tell her that if she ate apricot seeds, that would put the cancer into remission. And I'm like, I, I know you're stressed out, but don't listen to this stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. They'll start, you know, pouring coffee up your butt, you know. <laughs> just, just do anything. Ah. Well, uh, we are really running out of time. So, uh, again, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on, uh, Michael Shermer. And uh, your books and website will be linked with ours. And uh, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me. No, I really appreciate that. Good conversation. And, uh, Joe, keep up the good work. I can't wait to read the next book. What are you working oh, on? Oh, thank you. You too. <laughs> to find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.